I heard a story years ago, and I've heard several variations of it. And because KJ's not here, I had to Google the story to find out what really happened. But the story is told that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, you remember that name? The guy from the early 1900s who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series. He, he's the author of that. He was at a dinner party one night in London. This is in the early 1900s. And as they were sitting around the dinner table, discussion began to center on all the prominent citizens of London who were getting in trouble. Some of the government officials had gotten in trouble. Some of the leading uh, doctors and lawyers in that uh, in, the, in London, some, some dirt had been uncovered about them. And they went on to find out that even one of the clergy, something had happened in his personal life that had just come to light. And so this was the discussion around the table. And Arthur Doyle said this. He said, I believe that in every man and woman's life, there is at least one skeleton in their closet. In every person's life, and the crowd's all, oh, no, no, no. He said, I'll prove it to you. So you just pick out one prominent citizen of London. You decide. You pick out one prominent citizen of London, and I will make my point. So they picked a very prominent businessman, a man who had a spotless reputation as a husband, as a father, and in business practice. He was exemplary in all areas. And so Conan Doyle wrote him a telegram the next day, anonymously. And he said in this telegraph simply, all has been discovered. You must flee at once. He sent the telegram to the prominent businessman, and according to the story, they never saw him again. <laughs> now, you know, in full disclosure, we don't know that that really happened, but the story makes a good point, doesn't it? And as I said, I've heard variations of it, but the story makes a good point, and it raises several questions this morning. Is it true that we all have something to hide? Paul says here in verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Is it true that everybody has something they'd like to hide, a skeleton in their closet? Is it true also that there will be a day when everything will come to light? Everything will come to light. Is it true? Is God going to judge us? On that day, and if God does judge us, on what basis will God judge us? This morning, that's what we want to look at from Romans chapter 2, the righteous judgment, God's righteous judgment. Again, as I said, in Romans chapter 1, Paul has kind of painted a bleak picture of humanity. We see in verses 28 through 32 at the end of the chapter there, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. When I call your name, stand up. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder. Okay, we see the list there, okay? And so as Paul is going through this picture, painting a dark picture of humanity, let me remind you, we gotta get through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff, okay? It's on this backdrop of dark depraved humanity that God, that Paul gives us the picture, the light of the gospel, the glorious light of the gospel. See, there's no mercy without judgment. So if you're visiting with us today, so all they all talk about is judgment and hell and all that stuff. Well, yeah, it's real, but there's no mercy without judgment. We have to understand 
what judgment is all about before we can understand God's mercy. Paul paints a bleak picture in chapter one. Now he turns in chapter two to the religious people. The people probably a lot like us who say, yeah, those heathen deserve the wrath of God. Boy, let God's wrath come down on them, come down hard because we're okay. But Paul says, no, we're not. You who condemn others, you practice the very same thing. As a matter of fact, he's going to chapter three, verse 19. Look over there quickly. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And that's what we'll look at next Sunday, uh, verses 17 through 29, what it's like to live under the law. So that every mouth may be closed. And here's the key. All the world may become accountable to God. That's what we want to see this morning, church, is that all the world is accountable to God. Jew, Gentile, religious, unreligious, all the world is accountable to God. So this dark picture of humanity serves to, pay, to give us the light of the gospel. So the good news of the gospel begins with the bad news of judgment. And Paul says, we're all accountable. We're all accountable. This concept of judgment you know, it begins in the Old Testament. Moses told the nation of Israel, be sure your sins will find you out. In the book of Amos, Amos makes this great statement. He says, prepare to meet your God. You've probably seen that on a billboard. And you say, where'd that come from? It comes from the book of Amos. I like this, and this is sort of a side note, but not really. But Amos is the one who not only said, prepare to meet your God, but Amos also says, the lion hath roared, and who will not be afraid? The lion hath roared, and who will not be afraid? Do you remember in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia, when they were asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan? Aslan in, in the Chronicles of Narnia is a great picture of Christ. And so they asked Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. Safe? No. Jesus is not safe, but he's good. He is the king, the king. And we'll see about his righteous judgment this morning. First of all, God's judgment is according to truth. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Primarily verse 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth or rightly falls upon those who, who commit these sins. So, as we said, the religious Jewish man was sitting there and saying, yeah, yeah, those godless people deserve God's wrath. Yeah. But Paul says, you who condemn others practice the very same thing. You know what I've learned about human nature? It seems that the things that upset us most are the things that we're most prone to do. There are many sins out there that we condemn and we're quick to throw rocks. But, you know, as we look at, hey, we know that that's where my heart tends to go. And that's what Paul was saying to the Jews. You who condemn others, you do the very same thing. See, it was common for the Jews, like many of us, the religious crowd, to sit in judgment on sinners. They judged them, they condemned them, and they wanted nothing to do with them. That's the, that's the sinner crowd. You know, it's the... Again, the classic 
principle. But, uh, Pastor Colby mentioned this a couple weeks ago. And by the way, he and Car- uh, Catherine are on a much needed vacation this week. But it's a classic picture, when we think about it, of the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal. You know, it's just been in the last few years that I've, I've really realized that Jesus told that parable for many reasons. One, because God is the father who runs to meet the prodigal. But also, we are the older brother. We're the older brother. The prodigal is the one who very apparently went away and sinned and spent his money and, you know, loose, loose living and all that. Wine, women, and song. And when he returns, the brother says, I've obeyed all your commands. Really? I've never broken one of your commands. I've always done what you've said. Let me tell you, when we start talking in terms of never and always, we've lost touch with reality, right? Because <laughs> nobody never and somebody, nobody always. And that's what the older brother is like us. We're the religious crowd. And so we have this here, the prodigal, Romans chapter one, the older brother, Romans chapter two, the religious crowd. See, both the brothers, both brothers, the prodigal and the older brother needed the father's grace. And that's where we're headed this morning. The older brother boasts to the father, I've never neglected a command of yours. The religious crowd here says, condemn them, condemn them, condemn them. Two things that we know about the truth of God's judgment. First of all, God's judgment is universal. God's judgment is universal. You who judge, Paul says, you condemn yourself. Why are they condemned? Because they practice the very same things that the other people, the ungodly are practicing. They condemn them, but they practice the very same thing. In chapter three, verse nine, Paul speaking to the Jews says, what then, are we better than they? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. God's judgment is universal. Why? Because we've all sinned. We've all sinned against God. The Jews were quick to judge others, but now Paul says, you need to be reminded you need to realize that your sin will bring judgment upon yourself. Paul was trying to do what every preacher ought to do, but what ultimately the only Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can do, and that's to get the listeners to apply God's truth to themselves. And again, that was in my prayer this morning, that we would think about ourselves when we hear this message this morning. We all need to be reminded of the certainty of judgment. God's judgment is universal, the religious and the unreligious. The Gentile, the Jew, God's judgment applies to all of us. Secondly, God's judgment is unavoidable. Look at verse three. Or do you suppose that those who, you who practice such things, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you suppose that you can escape God's judgment? I heard a story several years ago that stuck with me. There was an evangelist who came through, uh, actually he didn't come to Evergreen, but came to Bruton and everybody in Evergreen went to hear him. Uh, but his name was Moody Adams. And Moody Adams told the story of a picture he saw one day on an Indian reservation. It was called The Last Tribal Execution. And it was a picture of a young brave who was, had obviously who was you know, bound and he was coming, standing before the men, and he was about to be executed. And so Moody Adams saw the picture, asked an Indian there, tell me about this picture. What's this all about? He said, well, this is supposedly the last tribal uh, execution. And according to the tradition of the Indians, the, the offender, the young man, had committed some capital crime. He was to be executed. And so as the, as the course of their legal system went, he was tried before the tribunal. 
He was convicted of his crime and he was sentenced to die. And then Moody Adams said what followed next was what amazed him. He was set free for one year. They convicted him of murder, sentenced him to die and said, you can go free one year. Go and get your house in order. Come back and then we'll execute you. (laughs) Moody Adams thought, maybe they drink too much fire water. Why would anybody come back? Man, you give me a year, I'm out of here. But the Indian said, no. The young brave knew that was not an option because he knew there was nowhere he could hide from justice. He knew there was nowhere he could hide. So every time they show up for their execution because they knew they couldn't hide. You know, there are a lot of ways we can escape justice. We can commit a crime and nobody ever finds out about it. Or we can commit a crime that we know and then we we get arrested and the justice system fails. And so we get off. Or we can commit a crime and be thrown in prison and escape and then live in freedom the rest of our life. So there are possible ways for us to escape man's justice. But with God, that is not possible. The Psalm 139 tells us that God sees us all the time. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Psalm 139 tells us that if we commit a crime and try to get away, we can't run from his presence. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I, make, if I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, O oh Lord, you are there. Where can we escape the presence of God? Once we're captured, we can never escape. He says, you've, laid your, you've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Because of, he, because of who he is, God's justice is unavoidable. It never fails. But in this passage here, Paul is telling them, do you think, do you think that you will escape the justice of God? Let me tell you why they thought they would escape. They thought they would escape the justice of God because they were Jewish. They were God's people, God's chosen people. They thought because they were of the right, born into the right family, of the right lineage, that they would escape God's justice. Now, chapter three, verse one, Paul's gonna talk about being the, advantage, the advantages of being Jewish, but he wants them to know that there is no escaping the justice of God, that every man must stand before God. Jews are special, but they will not escape the justice of God. They're so special, look at verse four. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. This is what the Jewish people had experienced. All the blessings had been showered upon them. His kindness, his tolerance, his patience with the Jewish people for centuries. But the purpose of God's blessings was to bring them to a point of repentance. Repentance. Teresa had a friend in, in Huntsville who was a rich man and very prosperous. And one night sitting up on the chair, looking out over his property, the Holy Spirit convicted him. The goodness of God, the kindness of God led him to repentance. That was the purpose of God's blessing on the nation of Israel was to bring them to a point of repentance. But they refused. They refused. We'll see that in verse 5. All those blessings were showered upon them for a reason. What about you? What about us? 
You know, there are many people today who think that we're okay because we've been raised in a Christian family. We were born into the right home. I started going to church nine months before I was born. You know, as a pew, I've always felt right at home in the church. But here, being in church doesn't make you a Christian. Being born in the right family does not make you a Christian, does not make you a right with God. That will not give you a basis to stand before God in the day of judgment. There are others who think they'll escape because they've been a good person. They lived a good moral life. You know, admitting nobody's perfect. We've made some mistakes. But for the most part, I'm a good person. So when I stand in the day of judgment, I'm going to be okay, right? As we'll see in a minute. Wrong. God is just. Let Let me tell you something. One thing that really bothers me, I hate injustice. And I think if most of you were honest, you'd say the same. Don't you hate it when a referee misses a call? And don't tell me you don't. That's injustice. That was pass interference. Come on, ref. I remember one time in Little League Baseball, my son got called out, Cameron. And boy, I was in the umpire's face before I knew what was going on. Oh, then I had to sit back down. We hate injustice. But let me ask you, do you think we're more concerned about justice than God's concerned about justice? No. And here's, here's the law. The soul that sins shall surely die. Do you think God is going to be more slack in his justice than we would be in man's justice? Not at all. The wages of sin is death. God's judgment is unavoidable. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed to all men once to die, and after that comes the judgment. And quickly, the Bible speaks of two judgments. Matthew 25, where the sheep and the goats are gathered together, the lost and the saved, they're separated. The sheep go to eternal life. The goats go, it's the other way, the goats go to to destruction, the sheep go to eternal life. But there's another judgment, and we'll talk, the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed in our body for what we have done according to our deeds, whether good or bad. So we will stand the great white throne as the sheep if you're in Christ. But we will stand also as believers before Christ to have our works, our life examined. So God's judgment is unavoidable, but God's judgment is righteous because he judges according to truth. Here's the point. You need to see the truth of God's judgment. But don't be like the Jews and think that it doesn't apply to you, but only to someone else. Don't make that mistake. God's judgment is according to truth. God's judgment is impartial. We see this in verses 5 through 15, but primarily look at verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. So here in this passage, we see how God's going to judge us. On what basis will God judge us? Now, let me tell you, you're going to be shocked. You got to listen to me, okay? Because number one, God judges according to what a man does. In verses five and six, again, we need to listen carefully because in these two, per, two verses, Paul says some things that are very shocking to us Baptists, okay? In verse five, He says, even as religious people, we are building a case against ourselves. (laughs) It's just like if you're going to court and you've got some evidence, hey, prosecutor, Mr. Prosecutor, I brought you something to use against me. That's exactly what he said. We're building our own case. Look at verse five. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Then in verse six, he says, 
that he will render to each person according to his deeds, according to his deeds. So let me, let's deal with verse five first. Here's simply what he's saying. If we stubbornly continue to refuse to acknowledge our sinful condition and we have not embraced God and his mercy, we're building a case of condemnation against ourselves. Our only hope is to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Why? Because of verse six, God will judge. God will judge. But his judgment is going to be based on what we have done. He will judge, render to each person according to his deeds. Here's the deal, church. Judgment is according to works. Salvation, we'll get there in a minute. Let me go ahead and give you the good part. Salvation is according to grace. But the concept of judgment is based on works. God will judge every man according to his deeds. You say, well, I'm I'm a good person. We'll talk to you in just a minute. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 16, 27. For the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, some people would say, well, I'm a good person. I like that idea. Do you really? Everything you've ever done? All your secrets brought to light? Mm, Not me. Not me. But God's going to judge us on the basis of our deeds. What does a good man look like? In verses 7 through 10, Paul tells us. Verse 7, the good guy looks like this. By perseverance and doing good, he seeks for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then again in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first. And also to the Greek, the good guy's got it made because the good guy is God centered. He seeks, he doesn't care what the world thinks. He's seeking after glory and honor and immortality. He's seeking after the things of God. The good guy is going to be glad on the day of judgment. But look over at Romans 3.10. As it is written, There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Are we beginning to understand this concept of judgment by works? Churches, our very works that condemn us that condemn us. It's our very works that tell us we need help. As Jerry Clower says, we're in a mess of trouble because no one is good. No one is good. But look at the unrighteous man. We see him in that passage in verses eight and nine. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will expect wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Salvation is by grace. Judgment is based on works. And we condemn ourselves based on our own actions. You say, well, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever been angry? Jesus said, if we're angry with our brother, we're guilty of murder. I've never committed adultery. Have you ever had lust in your heart? 
Jesus said, if we look at a woman to lust for her, we've committed adultery already in our heart. Are we beginning to get the picture? We're in a mess. We're in a mess. There's none righteous, not even one. We need to see that everyone, Jew and Gentile, religious and non-religious, we all be judged. We'll be judged on the basis of our deeds. So there's no hope because none of us are good. God judges according to our works and our own works condemn us. Secondly, God judges according to what a man knows. Look at verses 11 through 15. We already talked about the no partiality there in verse 11. But verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Here, Paul again talks about two categories, the righteous and unrighteous in uh, the first passage. Now he talks about those who have the law and those who do not have the law. Because I'm sure the Jews were thinking, hey, we got God's law. Isn't that going to help us out? Look at verse 13. Paul says, all who have sinned, me, yeah, yeah, verse 13, because it is, the hear, it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. See, we're going to be judged on the basis of what we know. If we know the law, Paul said, that's great. But here's the question. It's not if you know the law, but do you do the law? Do you obey the law? And that's what he tells the church in Galatia, that if you're going to claim the law is going to be your justification, then you've got to obey it perfectly. No one obeys the law of God perfectly. They never have. They never will. I remember as a college student here my freshman year, I was in a Bible study, but I hadn't quite yet given, hadn't yet given my heart to Christ. And then we were studying James. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. I said, that's not fair. I mean, if you keep the whole law, you do everything right and make one mistake, you're guilty. Yeah. See, that's the whole purpose of the law. If we're going to obey the law, we have to obey it perfectly. And no one can do that. So there are some who know the law. And Paul says it's that very law that's going to condemn you. What you know, you'll be judged by what you know. But then Paul says there's another group who don't know the law. What about those who have never heard about the law? Verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So what about those who don't know the law? Are they going to be held accountable? Paul says they are. Paul tells us here, listen to me quickly. All men, all men have the work of the law written on their hearts. What he's saying here, verse 15, our conscience, in other words, confirms to us that God's judgment against sin is real and it's righteous. God gives us a conscience to know right from wrong. That all men have that conscience. R.C. Sproul calls it the knowledge of God that he plants in our souls. See, sometimes our conscience excuses us and says, hey, you did the right thing. Good job. Sometimes our conscience accuses us. You did the wrong thing. 
That's not right. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have treated that person that way. We have a conscience that tells us right and wrong. See, we, we see this truth in, the, in many primitive forms of government. I mean, just the fact that they'd want to have some kind of government tells them that these people know there should, there's a sense of right and wrong, and they want to establish that. See, the problem is our hearts, the, the hearts of all men, we're wired toward doing wrong. Several years ago, I was at a conference, and David Platt was there. And David Platt said that he was asked, what about that innocent man deep in the heart of Africa who's never heard about Jesus? Will he be saved? And I was surprised when David Platt said, yes, absolutely. The innocent man deep in the heart of Africa will be saved. But he went on to say, there is no innocent man deep in the heart of Africa because in our conscience, we know right and wrong and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul says the Jews will be judged according to what they know, the law. Do you keep it perfectly? I do my best. It's not good enough. The Gentiles, the godless will be judged according to their conscience to know right and wrong. Did you do what was right all the time? I did my best. That's not good enough. We're condemned by our own works. God's judgment is according to truth. God's judgment is impartial. Number three, God's justice and mercy are revealed in the gospel. Verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. According to my gospel, See, unless we understand the concept of judgment, we'll never appreciate the concept of mercy. The gospel tells us that we are all, all men are accountable to God. That's what we've seen through the first 16 verses. All men, first two chapters, all men everywhere, we're all accountable to God. There will be a day when all skeletons and all closets will be revealed. The secrets of men will be revealed. And it is our very works that will condemn us. It is the very law that will condemn us. It is our very conscience that will condemn us. But the good news of the gospel is that though we're sinners and though we are rightly under the condemnation of God, yet God in his mercy and his love sent his son, God himself became flesh, who lived and died in our place. So that if we will repent of our sin and place our faith and trust in him, in his finished work on the cross, the gospel offers us salvation. If we will place our faith and trust in him, we will be saved. He receives the punishment of our sin. He is our substitute. And we receive pardon through his death. Those who are in Christ, we stand on the judgment day not in our good works, not in our performance, but I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I can stand before God righteous, not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ through the gospel that I've received by faith, by faith. Let's pray. Father, this truly is gospel.
It is good news. Father, as religious people, 